Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 7th, 2012, and my guest is David Weinberger, a senior researcher at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. His latest book is Too Big to Know. David, welcome back to Econ Talk. Hi. Our subject for today is knowledge, which is what your book is about. How has knowledge and our understanding of knowledge changed uh, because of the internet, and how has it changed over time? Uh, you start uh, early on in the book. You give a brief history of empirical knowledge and expertise, and you use Malthus uh, as an example of someone whose work had to change. Can you talk about that to start us off? Yes, I'm so the. Question is whether what role facts play because in the modern world these days we continue continue to have a hope that facts will settle arguments. Um, this is uh, put really well by Senator Moynihan, the late Senator Moynihan, when he said everybody's entitled to his own opinion but not his own facts, which is a sort of uh, lovely way of putting um, an old idea at least an Enlightenment idea, and uh, I think you can trace it back way further than that, um, where the idea is that we seem to have lots of disagreements, there's lots of opinions in the world, lots of ideas, and we argue about them. But, says Moynihan, and the the role of facts themselves, um, if we just sit down and look at the way the world is, look at the facts, reasonable people can come together and knowledge will, will, will heal us, will help us pass these divides. And knowledge that, um, in particular, in this case, looks at facts, as if facts are the irrefutable foundation of knowledge. And so, um, much as I like facts, and I believe in facts, and I think some things are true and some things are false, nevertheless, facts um, are a very modern invention. They're very new as a concept, and very their role in knowledge is only a couple of hundred years old. And so in the book, um, I use Malthus as a convenient example of what a pre-fact form of knowledge looked like. That is, when we didn't try to build knowledge up based upon the recitation and citation of facts. And so in his famous work um, that showed that the world was likely to starve itself to death because the population increases faster than the food supply. Or so he thought. Or, yes, <laughs> and uh, you know, at the time, um, wasn't unreasonable. Uh, yeah, but we've we've managed to break that curve pretty well. Um, so he, he writes a book about it, and it's an important book. It's classic work, but it's really sort of fact-free. Um, he, he's not arguing by looking around the world and looking at uh, statistics about food consumption and food production and population growth. He, he instead is doing the best he can at the time, um, 1800 or so, uh, gathering information about various um, ethnic groups. Or, um, <clears throat> sorry, not really ethnic groups, but you know, cultural uh, groups around the world and how they manage the problem of food supply. Um, really not very fact-based. 
But then over the next, I don't know, 20, 25 years, he revises it six times, six editions. It gets substantially larger, and it gets filled with modern facts. Or, you know, the fact it looks much more like a modern work. And so over that period of time, this is why I use him as an example, um, you can see the, the rise of facts as a way of grounding knowledge and of arguing for positions. Um, it's, it's, a, it's pretty dramatic. It happened very, very quickly. And what, in his case, do you think um, something jar him? Did he get pushed, or did he just have this new opportunity? It was in the air. It was in the air for a couple of reasons. One is statistics um, started to grow as a, as a way of looking at the world, and that was it, the term statistics entered the English language. I think around 1780 you know, came from. The German, and so their um, statistics as a discipline is growing, um, and uh, Jeremy Bentham's work begins to have a major effect on British thinking. Um, in particular, the British class system was pretty crummy for those who were not in the upper classes, and there was it was assumed that the poor were poor because they deserved to be. It was a, basically a moral argument or moral set of moral assumptions that the poor were they drank they were they were lazy they had no discipline they were dishonest and so yeah that's why they're poor and the rich of course were rich because they embodied the virtues and it was a pretty nasty sort of social um stew especially when it results in you know eight-year-olds being shoved into seven by seven inch chimney flues to clean them and it's really for their own good and you get you get this sort of argument. You can read it in, in in Parliament as some of the reform bills are being introduced. That you know the it keeps them it keeps them out off the streets because they'd be pickpockets and they grow up to be drunks like their fathers anyway. It's re- and it's really good for them. It's really not bad for them anyway. You know, it's a good healthy work work ethic and it's a just good healthy work for those you know ten year olds. So Bentham comes along. Um, a what a, a polymath philosopher guy, um, and uh, suggests that there might actually be another way of thinking about how to structure, uh, how to how to make value decisions in a society, um, which is you assume everybody has an equal interest in in happiness or pleasure or whatever you want to call it, um, and so you just sort of measure what will be what, what policies will bring bring more happiness into the world and less, and you drop out of it, who is it bringing happiness to? So all happiness is, is equal. Um, and so now you can do a type of statistical measure, at least you can start, um, start looking at that to see what the effect of policies might be, and maybe even more important, you have a reason to look at what the current happiness rate is of your population regardless of class. So you drop the moral thing out of it um, and you just you just look. And so now you have an incentive to go out and look across your, your society and to wonder, uh, well, are, are poor chimney sweep boys actually um, being harmed medically by this? I mean, we'd like to believe not, but let's take a look. And so the culture begins actually a factual investigation of itself. Um, and they which, find that it's actually maybe not so good for them. Uh, yes. And it, it's it, during the first half of the 19th century in England, you start to get these reform movements that are based on facts. As, 
so the parliament starts to compile blue books, so-called for an obvious reason, um, which are you know, modern-day reports based on statistics and actual um, facts uh, in order to argue policies. And by, by the mid-19th century, this regime of fact is so, so dominant um, that Dickens... Uh, actually starts pushing back against it. Um, facts, facts, facts. He he has Professor uh, Gradgrind, you know, one of these awful, you already know these. Yeah, you know he's the bad guy. Yeah, <laughs> Dickens didn't pull any, uh, he wasn't so subtle. <laughs> no, he was sort of Stephen King of his, yeah. of his era. But, um, uh, you already have Dickens, you know, um, pushing back against policy determined only by fact as opposed to um, Understanding the human plight this is a very modern sort of complaint, yeah, by the way. Sure, postmodern. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you, you, um, we've had echoes of this throughout our culture, all in the 20th century and beyond, where you know the, the fact-based expert is viewed as cold-hearted and merely a numbers cruncher and um, green and, eye shade. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the, the avatar of this in in American culture. Um, is um, the Rand Corporation. Oh, now I'm having a senior moment of forgetting the guy's name. Um, the nuclear theorist. Oh, um, Herman Kahn. Thank you so much. Man. I read your book. <laughs> you read the book more recently than I did. Yeah, I know all sure. about that. Sure, go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, so in, in the modern age, I, this is too too old for many of your listeners, I'm sure, but Herman Kahn in the 1950s, the Rand Corporation, which still is a very important um, expert consulting company to the government. Kahn was writing books about uh, nuclear uh, theory, game theory, um, in which he would make calculations about, uh, well, if, if we responded, um, here are the various responses possible to a Russian first launch. If we did this... That would happen if we did this other thing. Only uh, twenty million people would be killed, um, and you know, sort of, it is a sort of rational calculation that he was making. It's better for twenty million people to be killed than a hundred million. Nevertheless, for I think pretty obvious reasons, he got taken as the very symbol of the, the cold-blooded, fact-based, statistically based expert. Um, that is reflected. I mean, he's basically a character. I don't, in real life, I don't know, but he, got, he culturally became a character right out of Dickens, and it was the same sort of pushback against knowledge based on merely on facts. Yeah, his 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 most uh, famous book at the time, and you're right, it's lost to many of our younger uh, listeners, uh, was Thinking the Unthinkable, which was a great title. Uh, but that would be Thinking the Unthinkable, right? What, what's the best way to minimize the losses from a nuclear attack? And you could argue that's a good thing to think about. You could argue it's not a good thing to think about. And the, both arguments were made. I mean, the yeah. argument uh, against was, as I remember, was that by making it thinkable, you were making it more plausible. More likely, yeah. Now, I just want to mention that we do have the first and sixth editions of Malthus's uh, work on population up on uh, the Library of Economics and Liberty website. We'll put links up to them if you want to wade through them and confirm or challenge David Weinberger's assertion that – uh, this, the later editions became more empirical, but I suspect you're right. But you can read it for yourself and uh, and, and watch that happen, which is very cool. So uh, what's interesting about this to me as, as a modern is that there's this unavoidable tension between 
fact-free discourse is obviously dangerous. But there's this other danger that it's not so much to leave out the human side. It's that facts are not really truth. Um, you often need a context or a theory to generate them, to understand them, to not be misled by them. And we have this worship of facts, which you do talk about in the book, this this transition between uh, – you know, certainly between the ancients and the moderns, uh, that, that moderns are more empirical and experts have the facts on their side, which is a little bit um, – it's misleading in its own right. It's not always reliably true. Facts do not always get us closer to the truth and certainly not all statistical analysis gets us closer to the truth. No, but I so I, I want to um, tread a very careful line because we have seen what happens when we have administrations that don't care about facts. Some things can go terribly, terribly wrong. Facts are really important. So um, on the one hand, I do not want to be lumped with uh, people who say that all facts are constructions and that or you can believe whatever you want to believe. And I don't. I don't believe that. On the other hand, I, I do think that it's important, as you say, to recognize that facts are, to some degree, they are constructions. It's not, it isn't, the world is one way and it's not other ways. But facts, let me give you an example, and this is also from the book. So there's a site called hunch.com, which is about helping, it's a recommendation site, it recommends um, things that are matters of taste. You know, what movie should I see tonight? What type of food am I in the mood for? And it will give you an answer. You know, not a lot hanging on the answer. Um, I want to buy a uh, a, um, a a wedding gift for you know a, a cousin. And can you make any suggestions? So the way that Hunch works is that it asks you a series of questions, basically an endless series of questions, and many of them are generated by users at this point. And the questions are themselves sort of game-like and intensely often silly, irrelevant, and impossible. And so some of them are, you know, could be a straightforward thing, like uh, do you prefer uh, pink or, or red? Um, but many of them are things like have you ever, have you ever petted a dolphin? Um, do you store your kitchen glasses right side up or upside down? Um, do you, when you get a cell phone, do you also buy a cover for it? Um, do you own any plaid clothing? And from this, they induce uh, what your preferences are for what movie you want to see or what um, what food you want to eat. And in my case, say it works pretty well. You know, it's it's. It works pretty well. One of the interesting things is that they very explicitly do not, at Hunch, try to generate a theory of human taste. They don't know why, um, if you've ever touched a dolphin, uh, helps as an indicator of whether you will want to go see you know, a, a particular movie tonight. They, they purposefully are, are theory-free. They're right. just doing analysis. Just following the number. Just looking at the correlations. Um, yes. Um, which I think is interesting because it's a type of, of knowledge without understanding, it, insofar as it works. But the reason I bring it up is, um, as you go through these, um, you know, would you rather take a subway or eat a brownie? You know, these are not these are not polar opposites. It's a very silly question, right. and but they don't care. Right. But it nevertheless is a fact. So here's a fact that um, you could, I've learned from. Uh, from Hunch, um, I have never touched 
uh, a uh, I've never petted a dolphin. That's a fact. Yep. It's also it may well be that the next question that they're going to ask me is, have you ever pet, petted a um, an orangutan? And that's a fact too. Have you ever touched an orangutan's ear? No, I have not. Another fact. Have you ever uh, petted a plaid dolphin? No, I have not. Now that you ask, that is also a fact. These are insanely trivial facts, yeah. but they are facts. So the reason that I bring this up is that I think it helps make clear the extent to which facts are constructed. So the content of the fact can be right or wrong, but the, that you have picked this particular set of things as the facts that are worth um, looking at is entirely a, a construction. Um, it depends upon what your interests are. And so to think that... So facts remain very important, but to think naively, as I think in our history we have, that we can get to knowledge by accumulating facts is not at all the case. Because I have never touched a a plaid dolphin. That's also a fact. There is um, art um, as well as science in deciding which of the facts are the foundation upon which you're going to build belief. And that means that foundation is itself not a natural object, as we have thought, it is um, itself a construction. Yeah. Well, let me. I want to. I want to take your example and uh, let me take you in a different. Take you to a different place and see if you still agree. I, I certainly agree with you that um, there's an in, this in, very narrow, uh, nuanced uh, path that I often feel myself taking in this uh, jungle of whether facts are truth or not and constructed or not and if you're not careful you end up um you're um <clears throat> you believe in uh, say uh, voodoo or esp or something that's horrifyingly uh, you think is wrong but if you're not you can go the other way and you can be deluded into thinking you have the truth when you're not you're not even close so i'll give you an example that your your examples you know barring a mistyping on the survey on the computer or uh, a whimsical decision to lie about my dolphin petting experience, right? Those those facts you're talking about, they're they're either true or false. I've either petted a dolphin or I haven't, and you know I might lie about it on the survey or make a mistake, but in general, those are facts. Um, how tall I am at any point in time in my life these these are measurable things there's there's a measurement error potentially. You know, there's you might want to say plus or minus a millimeter or two because. Maybe I'm slumping a bit or my, I had a bad night's sleep. But we all understand those kind of uncertainties about facts. The other, but, but those aren't the facts we use for public policy decisions or social science or even physical science. The things that we use for those, those are facts in a really, I would argue, very, very different kind of way. And I'll give you, let me give you an example and, and see what your reaction is. Uh, in the 1980s, the U.S. homeownership rate fell. Uh, it fell fairly dramatically by historical standards. And one of the reactions of policymakers was uh, concern that, that housing had become unaffordable, that the housing market wasn't working well. And that was either an excuse, justification, or cause uh, for a lot of public policy encouraging homeownership in the United States. Now, was it a fact that the homeownership rate was declining? It was probably a fact. Why it was happening was not a, is not a fact. That's, that's a theory, uh, a model, uh, 
a metaphor, a vision, a hypothesis. And in fact, the standard interpretations of that, one of the things that I've never seen discussed, for example, is that the divorce rate was rising dramatically in the United States in the late 70s, in this, throughout the 70s, actually. And so when you went to measure the home ownership rate, you had a lot of a lot more entries in the denominator uh, because there were more households all of a sudden. And a lot of those people had split up, of which one became a renter if they'd, and who had been a homeowner before. And so that told us nothing about how easy or difficult it was to afford a house. It was a result of a social phenomenon called a higher divorce rate. And so those kind of facts which come up with income inequality, um, growth of, of income, crucial issues which are going to affect uh, politics, legislation, etc., they're not in the same realm of have you petted a dolphin. They're complicated and often not truth. They're something – they have truthiness, but they're not truth. Well, uh, that homeownership fell isn't truthy. It's true. Oh, that's so, right. No, right. I said I agree with that. But, but what, uh, I'm just what, trying to make sure I'm, I'm getting the gist of this because I, I think that we agree, but let's let's see. So the fact that the homeownership fell, we will take as as true, and just for, we'll stipulate that it's true, and thus is a fact, and and is likely an important fact. How we put them together, we've known forever. That's all that we talk about, even in the age of facts, is how we what the relationship among the facts are. Um, and are we considering the right fact, the facts? This is one of the reasons why Freakonomics is an eternal bestseller. Is that the, holy cow, there's a set of facts we have, or conditions we haven't considered. Well, I think there are very few facts in that book, actually. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of statistical analysis, which I don't consider factual. Uh, interesting. Um, okay, then I, I withdraw the. Well, the let's, talk, no, let's talk about that. Do you, I, mean, the, I mention it because I. You're not a really regular listener. I talk about it maybe way too much on this program, but I'm very interested in the in the problem of how we understand causal relationships in social science and in economics. And I would say it's it's equally problematic in the other social sciences, if not worse. Uh, we use various multivariate statistical techniques to tease out causation. To take one that's in the news, uh, did the stimulus create jobs? Um, I'd say we have no idea. Um, I don't think that's a scientific question. It gets answered using scientific techniques. Uh, facts are accumulated about past government spending and past levels of employment, past levels of output. Statistical relationships are teased out among those variables. Uh, quote, we do the best we can. Have we established a fact about, say, the relationship between a dollar of government spending financed by debt and how many – and the in impact on – national income? And I'd say, no, it's not a fact, not even close to a fact. It gets quoted as a fact. Relationship is 1.57 or 0.6, but um, I don't consider that a fact. And that's a, I'd say that's an enormous percentage of what goes for uh, knowledge in, in the social sciences, and I think it's fake knowledge. Well, so I, I refuse to disagree with you. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> okay. I will, you know, <laughs> at least on this point. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I think that's, I, I, I very much like your way of putting this. Um, I, I would put, I would point maybe to two things and put it a, a little differently. Um, and I, but I suspect you'll agree, but you'll tell me. Um, the first is that, um, I, I don't think that it's an accident that we are seeing, um, the rise of complexity theory, um, 
in an age when we have the tools by which we can um, gather enough information that we can see how complex it is and have uh, tools that can help us a bit to understand that complexity. Um, the computing power doesn't keep up with the complexity or else it wouldn't really be complexity. Nevertheless, we can do better than we than we could than we could when we were just writing things down. And so we have a long cultural history of making exactly the sort of assumptions that you've just been talking about, namely the set of facts, you figure out, and there's causality, and if you put the two together, you can answer a question like, uh, did the stimulus create jobs? Or a question like, what was the cause of the Civil War? What were the causes of World War One? As if this is a, a finite um, question that must have an answer. And maybe we're not going to be good at answering it, but it's got to have an answer. But if, it's, if we are in um, a world that is more complex than than we can imagine, and the more that we learn and the, f- the further down in the level of detail that we go, the more the complexity, uh, the more complex it becomes. It doesn't become simpler. That's, it used to be the case that if you looked at, if you went to the, the simpler elements, you would find something simpler. But in a fractally complex world, that's not the case. So um, systems biology that's looking at simple cells, the most basic element of life, it should be simple, or at least simpler than life itself, um, turns out to be so complex that brains can't understand it. Uh, computers do understand at least a bunch of the interactions that go that happen across the cell wall, but it is a deeply, deeply complex area of life, and that's at the simplest level. So right. my brain or your brain is unbelievably complicated, and we're not close to understanding it very well. And we're and then we're going to now talk about how my brain interacts with your brain. <laughs> yeah, uh, we don't. Even, as far as I'm concerned, we don't even have a. a a good metaphor for the brain at this point, and I, I don't know that we ever will. Anyway, so, yeah, so we have, um, on the one hand, I think, an embrace, uh, a very healthy embrace of complexity theory where somebody can interrupt the conversation and say, but, you know, I'm not even sure if that question is, is science, is a scientific question. Um, uh, and uh, the second thing that's happening at the same time, and not accidentally at the same time, is um, the growth of data commons um, as a way of proceeding. These um, enormous clouds of data that are being released from multiple disciplines. A few weeks ago, uh, there was a report saying that we, were, we are likely to have an exabyte of simply of genomic data within the next two years. I mean, that is a lot of data. I assume that's a lot. That, yeah, that is a I don't lot know what data. an exabyte is. It's, it's an, is it after Terra? Uh, no, it's or, after PETA. Okay. Uh, you know, so it's like, you know. Giga? Giga Terra. Peta, exa? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's probably wrong, but that's, a, that's what I remember. Okay. Um, in any case, it is you know gigantic bunch of data of the sort that we never even talked about. It was beyond reckoning. So um, we have these enormous clouds of linked data that's uh, in format suitable for computers to trawl through them. And um, there's this guy, John Wilbanks, who uh, until recently was the head of Science Commons that was part of Creative Commons. So he's very interested in and helping to facilitate the growth of these data commons and multiple sciences, in, um, and particularly in ways that allow them to uh, intersect their data, hook up their data. And he says, he says this, I, I think he puts this wonderfully. Um, he's pushing back against the idea that we can take all, this, all of this data, model all of the rules, uh, input the data, and get uh, predictions and outcomes and understanding on the other side, which makes sense in the old view of facts and knowledge. 
oh, here are the facts. We know right. how they go together and turn the crank, yep. um, even for complex systems. And he says, no, that will never happen. What we really need, and here's, here's the quote, what we really need is my nerds arguing with your nerds. In a perpetual argument, right? The idea mm-hmm. is not that, and then my nerds win and crush right. your nerds. It's that this, in that argument, the multiple nerd argument, which is looking at facts and taking facts and data very seriously. We don't want to lose sight of that. Facts still matter a lot. But the knowledge consists in not the resolution of these issues because in a complex world, the things don't resolve that nicely, but is rather in the continued engagement, discussion, argument, disagreement among the nerds who are looking at the data and looking at the facts. And I love the quote, and I, I think it captures exactly what the I, uh, what the idea is. Yeah, there's um, there's that's, there's real insight there. Um, I keep thinking about. Uh, Something I saw of Nassim Taleb's, I can't remember if we talked about it in the recent uh, interview I did with him. I think it came up. But he, he has a diagram where he has a, a giant cube and that cube, that giant cube is what what we'd like to know. And pulled out of that giant cube is a little tiny cube and that's what we know scientifically through the scientific method, through confirmable hypotheses and tests and rejection and – we're constantly fighting the urge, usually failing, to take what we know in that little tiny cube and apply it to what we to the big cube. And um, I think about that that quote you just gave. Uh, again, thinking of putting it in an economics context, um, you know, does does Keynesian stimulus work? I did a rap video called "The Fight of the Century," where we, we talked about how this debate between, say, Keynes and Hayek or the pro-stimulus and anti-stimulus people is unsettled. It's still going on. Somehow we haven't figured it out yet. And thinking about your quote, um, my nerds versus your nerds, I don't think it's – I've come to believe it's probably not resolvable through the traditional methods of science. But you do learn something from arguing about it even if you don't convince each other in the way that you normally would through a replicable experiment. Uh, I think both sides learn something. Now, what they might learn is to get more entrenched in their own views. And let's turn to your – back to now some of the arguments in the book. Uh, one of the things you talk about I think very uh, provocatively and and insightfully is the, the this sort of tension in the on the internet between hanging out with people who think just like you, which is comforting <laughs> uh, and feels good often – but dangerous because it's prone to groupthink or echo chamber effects versus exposing yourself to other viewpoints and learning about things you don't agree with and maybe getting smarter but less comfortable. So talk about how that's going on in the internet. Okay. So this is actually one of my least favorite um, topics because I am so uh, uncertain. Well, we make it short then. You don't have to talk long about it. I have plenty of other questions. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think it's a really important topic to bring up in any discussion of knowledge in the Internet because uh, the echo chamber argument um, is, is pretty uh, – well, it, it's a powerful argument. Uh, it says that um, if you give people many different um, sources to listen to, they will naturally tend to listen to ones that are um, that they agree with, and there are bad consequences of that. Namely, you get recon- further confirmed in your own belief, and in fact, you become uh, more extreme in your beliefs. There's some evidence that that's what happens, and the internet is just that situation. Therefore, uh, and so there's a, a great deal of agitation about the echo chamber, um, 
and on the one hand, um, I, I, part of me doesn't care about how severe the echo chamber effect is, um, whether it's a lot or a little, because even if it's a little, we still need to be doing everything we can to avoid closing ourselves off to alternative views. Um, you know, I'm a good liberal, not just politically, but in terms of sort of uh, traditional liberal, uh, enlightenment liberal sort of guy. So I think that uh, openness to contrary ideas improves thought. Um, and, you know, uh, sorry, that's what I think. Uh, and I'm old, and um, that thought itself is not very open to. <laughs> yeah, you're pretty close minded about your openness, aren't you? I am, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, on the one hand, um, so it, it, on the one hand, it doesn't matter how severe it is. We still need to be doing everything we can as parents and as individuals and institutionally to uh, to avoid it. On the other hand, it seems to me there's some um, some wrong uh, I don't know conclusions or maybe there maybe there are assumptions within that model um, that we we also need to that we need to be careful about. So the models the the echo chamber model seems to assume that the only good conversation is one with somebody with whom you disagree and otherwise you're just in your comfort zone i mean the language around it is all negative you're in your comfort zone you're reconfirming you're closing yourself down so a real conversation is you arguing with somebody with whom you disagree and not just arguing but being open to change because you know if you're not open to change then then you're incapable of learning and there's no point and so the model should be, um, you know, the Jew, and I say this as a Jew, that's why I take this example, but the Jew talking with uh, a neo-Nazi, and the Jew says, welcome, my friend, let's have some coffee, because we're in a coffee shop, because that's the, you know, that's become the, the setting for these conversations, these ideal conversations. Or a Let salon. Yeah, or it's, oh. it's the salon slash coffee shop slash faculty lounge. You know, it's, it's um, where we romanticize yeah. intellectual discourse. Yeah, in the Habermas thing, it's, it's the coffee shop. So I'm going to put in a coffee shop if you don't mind. So um, what would you like? Would you like? Let me, uh, it's, it's on me. You would like? Fine. We'll get you uh, your Nazi latte. Yeah. And let's talk and let's work down to our, our differences. And I am open to becoming a Nazi, my good friend, just as I'm sure you are open to becoming a Jew. And that's a real conversation. But that ideal, that conversation never, not only never happens, it can't happen, because conversation needs a great deal of agreement. And so I worry that the echo chamber argument leads us to undervalue um, the extent to which we need similarity in order to be able to have a simple conversation or to have a culture at all. So for you and me to talk... We have to share a language. We have to have a topic that we both think are interesting. Is interesting. We have to have a basic set of assumptions uh, and values, or else we can't get anywhere. We have to um, uh, have a set of conversational norms that are very particular and precise, even if we don't generally articulate them that guide the conversation. We have to have so much in common simply to have a com- conversation. And furthermore, the conversations that advance thought generally are not between the Jew and the Nazi or between the creationist and the evolutionist or whatever you want to pick. They're conversations among people who know a great deal about a topic, share huge amounts. I mean, they're 99.999% in agreement, but there are two economists who disagree about you know this particular issue. And the conversation that advances both of their thinking is the one that iterates on some tiny difference. Something that, you know, they're getting all heated in their discussion, but to an outsider who doesn't 
no economics, it would look like they're arguing. You would ridicule them, right. them because they're arguing over something trivial. We need – echo chambers are, are, are an issue, but we should not undervalue the extent to which knowledge is based out of conversations with, whom, with people with whom we fundamentally agree. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a very deep insight, and think about it. And and the reason I think it's hard to think about is that that word echo chamber or groupthink those are so horrifyingly negative uh, as a way to describe it. But when you describe it as the way you describe it, we have to have these shared values, norms, et cetera. It makes sense. And when you look at your own life, uh, uh, it's and when I came here to George Mason, I'm a I'm a pretty hardcore free market libertarian, classical liberal guy. I was worried we'd sit around all day when I got here and we'd talk about how bad the minimum wage is. Uh, that's not what we talk about. It's not very interesting and it's not why um, – fortunately, it's not what we do. And I've learned an enormous amount of economics from my colleagues here even though we pretty much agree on most things as you say. But for, just to start with, because of that agreement, you can go very deeply into aspects of things you don't fully understand in a way you can't with somebody who doesn't share norms, basic – values, et cetera. So if you look at your own life and you ask yourself, who have you learned the most from? It is romantic. We do say often, oh, I've got this great friend. We don't agree on anything, but we respect each other. And we, and you, often you argue with those people, but uh, and, and if you're lucky, they're polite and civilized. But I think the people you learn the most from are maybe the people you already pretty much agree with. That may be more an indictment of our you know, dogmatic selves, but I think it's a, it's a deep aspect of human nature. Yeah, and I don't think it's a dogmatic aspect. Um, it's how culture advances. It's how knowledge advances. So if you are trying to um, come up with, you're in a lab and you're working on a vaccine for whatever, um, and you're having your, your weekly meeting to talk and to advance, you're having people in, it's not helpful to have somebody there who says, uh, you know, all vac- vaccines cause autism. You don't want – that discussion may be important to have somewhere. Yeah, but not there. <laughs> right. You need it's the group thing. Way. You need the echo chamber working. You do. Well, um, you do. Yeah. That, which is, as you say, there might be a time and place to worry about issues that are not shared or that are, where there's diversity. But it's a, it's a really um, really interesting thing. It, it, it challenges the notion, by the way, that uh, – Diversity is um, inherently good. You talk about this a little bit in the book, this view that uh, the way we get wiser is by encouraging all views. And uh, there's some truth to that. Obviously, groupthink is dangerous and you you need the crank. Sometimes the crank is right. Sometimes the heretic is right. Sometimes the apostate is onto something. But a lot of times that person's a crank and you're better off moving forward. Um, Yes, and – and what you say is is important. You need you need both. Um, and you got plenty it, of both on the internet. <laughs> well, but you don't have to. Well, That's so true. this is the argument. I mean, um, do we indeed? It's there, but are we consulting it? And I think data are very uh, very uncertain about this because it's a very difficult question to pose correctly. Um, so. Uh, Cass Sunstein, from whom the, much of this argument comes. Um, yeah, he's been a guest on here. Oh, good. Okay, so he looks at the number of links on political sites to opposing sites, and he finds only, I think, so I always get facts and stats wrong. But I think he <laughs> Ironically, finds it, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, 
um, that only 15% of political sites have links to the opposition, or it might be 15% of the links on political sites linked to the opposition. And Yohai Benkler, um, uh, who is you know, this brilliant thinker and writer, as I'm sure your listeners yeah, know, sure. um, has responded in part. I mean, he has a deep response to this, but part of it is he hears Sunstein cite this this number, and he doesn't know whether he should be happy or sad. You know, is fifteen percent a lot? You can think of that as actually being wow. Political political sites have fifteen percent linking to the opposition. That's amazing. Have or fun. you can say, well, it really should be fifty percent, which is yeah. you know would be an absurd thing. You're on you're on a site, Daily Coast or, or Red State. You know, it's all about um, having a conversation among people who have a basic agreement in their politics, and you, you think that it's a failure of democracy if half their links don't go to the opposition. We don't we don't have a metric for what's a, what's a reasonable amount of openness, and so the data are very hard to gather and evaluate. Yeah, I I, um, I just think that whole all those concerns are just way overrated. Um, uh, Bankler's also been a guest, by the way. I don't, I, we talked about something else, but um, I think um, this whole issue of whether the and you talk about it in the book at, at length of whether the the net is making us stupider or smarter. Is uh, uh, there's nothing new under the sun, and, and you refer to this as well. People have always complained about open access being dangerous uh, for a hundred different reasons, but so now we have a few new ones. But we have the old ones too. It, you know, people can't handle it; they're not smart enough. They'll just hang out with people they agree with already. And you know, my reaction is really is just so what? <laughs> you know, I really I don't get what the um, what the outcome would be that you'd want. Uh, if you accepted these arguments, um, I, I just – I really – I don't understand it. I think there is uh, no doubt that there are negative things about the internet for my life. Uh, there's also no doubt most of them are glorious in terms of knowledge and understanding and options and choices. And I read I read mostly people I agree with, but I read lots of people I don't agree with. Some of them are commenting on my blog and some of those are just sport. And um, it's they're not teaching me anything, and some of them are deep and make me think. And you know, I think we learn through conversation, which is why I, I like this podcast. I learn a lot from my guests, and I think what the internet lets us do is have more conversations with more kinds of people. And some conversations are just for fun, and some of them are in that lab where you're trying to advance truth and science. And there's they're all kinds. They're all and they're all there, and there's more than you could ever possibly want or enjoy. They're they're all there to sample and. Taste. I think it's phenomenal. Well, I mean, I do too, but I'm going to push back. Because I, I, I fundamentally believe that the Internet, I'm very optimistic about the Internet, um, but I don't want to overly blithely um, uh, dismiss some of the issues. So, um, what worries you? Uh, one of the primary things, well, so uh, two things. One is really elitist. One is that uh, people who are um, educated and good at gathering knowledge, which are the sorts of people that you and I generally hang out with, we're we're good at the internet, or so we believe. Um, it's not as clear that um, people with less education, less training, um, are going to resist the worst aspects of the echo chamber. I think it's highly likely that. Um, those of us, so when, I, when people say the internet's making us stupider, 
it's very rare that they include them, themselves in that description. Of course. It's always those <laughs> other people that it's making stupid. And, and I just did that, and I wanted yeah. to both acknowledge pater- that. There's and, a paternalistic aspect to it. Yeah, yes. Um, and, and wondered, uh, and acknowledged that it's very likely that um, the Internet is, in the same way, making highly educated people stupid as well. Nevertheless, um, so I do, I look at, um, you know, I, I, I'm interested in politics. Um, and it seems just hard to deny that we have gotten more polarized as culture in the U.S., uh, politically. The, the degree of polarization over the past four years, um, and you Eight, can take it back further. Twelve, yeah, yeah. sure. It does not seem to be better. It seems to be getting worse. I don't have evidence for this except, you know, what I look at every Feels day. Feels that way, though. It does. Um, and first of all, I think that's a bad thing. Um, and second of all, it is coincident, uh, not entirely, but it is coincident with the rise of the Internet. And so, um, although I think that there are certainly contributory factors off the Internet that one can look at, um, you got to wonder whether if... One believes, as I do, that the internet is is, the, is affecting so much of our culture. Then, you know, you got to wonder: is the internet, in fact, having this effect of polarizing us, as the echo chamber argument predicts? That's interesting. Could be. What would you possibly? I, I, you know, my first thought is could be. My, and I, and it's, when people talk about this, my I inevitably think of um, Thomas Jefferson. Um, running for president and the incredible negative campaign that was run against him, which I think is part of the polarizing argument, this, this sort of appealing to people's worst instincts and negative campaigning. And uh, so, again, I don't think there's anything new under the sun. It, 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 you can legitimately argue, though, it's gotten worse um, because of technology. But let's say it's true. Let's say it has gotten worse. I'm, I'm agnostic. I'm skeptical a little bit even. Uh, but let's say it has gotten worse. What would you do about it? It's an interesting point. It may be true. There's no doubt that, that to read left or right, uh, the comment sections of prominent blogs is depressing. If you're – I think on either side, um, I think it's extraordinarily depressing what people write. But then I think, well, they're just having fun. You know, Maybe it's just like a place to scream and shout and maybe I shouldn't put too much stock in it. But, but let's say I should get worried about it. Let's say it's alarming. Let's say it reduces our ability to – Solve our problems, make progress, improve the human enterprise. What would you do about it? Well, another possibility is that we are simply hearing the level of vituperation that otherwise, that formerly it. we couldn't hear because it yeah. didn't make it on the broadcast news. Yeah, it's true. You know, um, but so uh, so, what do you do about it? Well, um, first of all, I wring my hands, so that's one <laughs> important step forward. Yeah, it's huge. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Some of this is, um, uh, I will overstate this, but some of this is uh, determined by the technology, by which I mean we know empirically that small changes in how discussion for work, small uh, small changes in the technology or the policies can have huge effects on the tone of... Absolutely. So there is some level of engineering that we can do. If you, if you have a site that is generating just these horrible, awful, pointless then your conversational, your forum is broken. You need to fix it, unless that's what you want. But right. generally, we don't. Um, so we know that there are things you can do. What are those things? I, I don't know. You know, it's, it's, um, 
there's a lot of tinkering that's required because they're very sensitive to very small changes. I could tell you a story, but uh, I will spare you. No, but uh, an- anonymity makes a difference versus identifying yourself. Uh, there's lots of – which is seemingly small, but it's huge. Uh, um, yes. Also, how threading works and, yep. and there's tons of variables to play with. Yep. So that's one thing we can do. We can um, fix uh, broken um, social media. Um, there are um, sort of explicit things that people can do in order not to tolerate that level of discourse. And those are good things to say, especially for people who are in positions where other, you know, they're respected. Um, and there's a set of stuff that has, that can only be done through education, you know, of, of yeah. all, in all the different ways that we have it, including in public schools. Um, but we do need to, I, I, we do need to learn how to engage in, in discourse in a new medium. We always whenever there's a new medium, we have to figure that out. Now we have a new medium that keeps inventing new media. Right? right? I mean, the internet is is not a medium, but it allows lots of different media to to emerge. And so we have to keep reinventing how to do it, and to do it in a globe where the global norms are now at play. Yeah, it's an interesting point because you know I think I watch my kids answer the telephone. You know, when they're younger, they pick it up and they go, what? <laughs> the person on the other end doesn't know how to respond to that. And eventually you socialize them. You, you teach them how to say, you know, how to respond, how to start a conversation. And, and that's, uh, that, will, that will evolve and emerge on the Internet in different ways over time. Yeah, and, and it, or, it already has, but it does so locally. So at uh, Huffington Post, you know the sort of things, and at Reddit, there's a highly evolved, actually, set of I don't know, norms and expectations or culture mm-hmm. that's there. And so in site after site after site after site, these various norms um, emerge, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Um, I don't know that there's, in fact, if I had a guess, I'd say there isn't going to be an overall Internet norm no. because of the differences in, uh, in what the sites are trying to do. Which means we have to get better at at sites in helping people to understand what the norms, policies, and affordances are for each site. Let, let's shift gears. I want to talk about a, a theme in the book that um, we haven't touched on, which is – I would call it narrative. Um, you, you talk about how narrative argument in a book is different than the way we encounter knowledge uh, typically now on the internet. And the difference between a a more open, web-like, connected set of links, which is what the internet gives us, to a book, which is fixed and um, and and somewhat linear. Not all books are linear, but often are. And talk about what has changed there, and what you think will change, and how we think about arguments and knowledge. So I think this actually pulls together a couple of the things we've been talking about, because if the world is, in fact, so fractally complex that any pathway through it, uh, connecting pieces, is at best a brave attempt, um, and what we really need is a um, there's lots of nerds arguing with lots of nerds, and if the truth is, in fact, in those disagreements and arguments, not in the resolution of them into a single one, because the world is too complex for that, then um, if we had, if we started with the internet as a medium rather than starting with paper and parchment uh, for knowledge, um, I don't, 
I don't think that we would have come up with the notion that we have in, in Western culture over the past few thousand years, that the pinnacle of, of human knowledge is to write a what is a, essentially a, a, a narrative argument that leads the reader from the beginning to the end of the, of, of the argument, and at the end, the reader believes something that she actually didn't believe and maybe would have resisted at the beginning of the argument, but each step of the way, you constructed this argument. That model, that long-form argument model, is just so wildly out of whack with the world as exposed um, on the net as a uh, endlessly chaotic set of messy links. I mean, that's how knowledge appears on the net. Because when your nerds argue with my nerds, they're not just doing it on the telephone. They're putting up sites and they're responding to each other and they're doing it in the social media. And it's, you know, the big stinking mess. That, and they're linking to other sites that you can then go. 100%, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and that entire messy web, and you don't even know where it begins or ends exactly, that is where the knowledge is, just as knowledge in some sense in the old days we said we think of as being in books and libraries. So that the sort of narrative that many that, that we've taken as being the highest um, construction of knowledge by humans that we put it together in these, in these elegant narratives, which have a beauty, no doubt, um, don't make sense as as the pinnacle of knowledge. They make sense as a tour, sort of an idiosyncratic tour through an interesting set of links. Um, but not as the way that the world is. I think the world is coming to look much more like the web than like a long logical argument, or put differently. We used to think that, basically, that God, or the Creator, thought in, long, in, in these long arguments that God could see exactly how all the pieces go together, and it was our job with our feeble capabilities to try to get as much of that straight as we could. And... You know, right now, it's beginning to look like God thinks in webs, not in, in long arguments. Yeah, and that's a very um, – <clears throat> it's a very rich idea, and, and you reflect in the book on the irony of writing a book about how books are increasingly becoming obsolete. Uh, it, it, it's interesting how few books are um, nonlinear. Right, you could write an you can write a nonlinear book, a book of interesting things that are to be sampled nonlinearly. Uh, there are books like that, not too many. Um, there aren't books like here's a bunch of interesting things I've thought about, <laughs> uh, which is what the web is. That's what that's what my blog is, for example. Right, my blog is here's a bunch of interesting things I think about. Any one post is it might be related to some other post, in which case I might link to it, but I don't attempt to. Just lead the reader on a path, and uh, that's true of these podcasts, right? They're they're not. There's no plan, not even by me. Uh, it's just what I'm interested in and and who I feel like talking to. And the reader, the listener, gains knowledge in a very different way from that experience. Then, here are my insights on the financial crisis, A through G. Read them in order. I've constructed them for you to to teach you something. And let me settle that for you. Yeah, exactly. And when you're done, you'll you're, know. You're them. done. You you'll got know. it. You don't it, need to read anything else. And I, it, you're right. I mean, I think it, it's a richer. This is the way I think the net, in a way, is really making us smarter. You know, the idea that that knowledge used to be in libraries is not true. Um, that there was never knowledge until you tried to read those books and process it through your own life and experience, and you don't. 
you don't get wise or knowledgeable by consuming. You get wise and knowledgeable by chewing and thinking and relating. And um, that's what the internet lets us do. Well, um, let you. So that was always the case. The internet lets you do it in public and leave the trails, the traces of your. Well, the chewing thing doesn't work. <laughs> but of your <laughs> it's lines, a metaphor. Yeah, your lines <laughs> of thought. Right? And so we now have a constantly increasing, increasingly rich set of connections among. Among pieces, and furthermore, every so this actually goes back to the question of facts that there are an infinite number of well, I'll say an infinite number, of Close, facts, yeah. an indefinite number, um, including that I have never petted a plaid dolphin. Yeah. Um, but the facts that we th- the facts that we care about are ones that we find interesting. Those are the ones we think of as fact, and so under, underneath knowledge has been human interest. All along, and that's inevitable because that's fundamental to us. We're a creature that cares about what happens to us, and that cares about what happens to our world and to others who share that world. That's really fundamental to being to being a human being. And this new medium, this linked medium, every link expresses human interest. Uh, often in despicable things, but there you have it. I mean, this is a reflection of what we yeah. as humans find interesting. And how, you know, so every link is a pointer away from your site to somebody else's because you you think somebody else will find that other site interesting because it shows the world or a little bit of the world um, and how that world matters to the person you're linking to, which is different than how it matters to you. This is such a, a, a better reflection of the nature, from my point of view, of the nature of of the world that the world that we live in that we experience is infinitely complex fractally complex all the way down to the details it doesn't resolve into simples and is is focused around based around is understood through uh, our interests as human beings and that's just the way it is i don't know if you've read it uh, but hayek's nobel prize lecture is called the pretense of knowledge and what he says in there is that the complexity of human interactions called an economy cannot be uh, boiled down to simple causal relationships, which is another way of saying I think what – partly what you just said. Um, I also think about the fact that when I'm I, – I joke with people about one of the – when I tell people you ought to have a blog and they – especially older people, who not, they're not consumers of blogs. So I start telling them – what the virtues of them are and the drawbacks. I say one. You know, one of the virtues is um, when you when you have a blog, the editor really likes your stuff. You know, yeah. uh, the disadvantage is he always likes your stuff because you can say some things on the web you're ashamed of or regret later. But it is a platform. To, it's a little. It's a little or a big megaphone depending on how popular your your blog is. But the part about it that I think is really, again, I mirroring your point is that. It's a place to think out loud. You don't have to – because you're the editor, you don't have to write your final word. It can evolve. You can learn new things. You can change your mind, uh, which you can't – once that book's published, you're kind, you can write a book later disagreeing with your own book, your first book. But there is that um, fixity of, of print and paper that, that the web uh, somewhat erases. Yeah, I got the date of the start of the, um, the well, an early forum on the internet. I got it wrong. Whoops! I can't fix it. It's in. It's printed. So yeah. But everything else on the web, you just change it. You just fix it. Uh, now it doesn't solve the problem. People may have read the earlier web post that you got it wrong, and they didn't get to the later one. That's you know that's still 
an imperfection that is part of can't be avoided. Yeah, well, if it's perfection you're looking for, you you, you got incarnated into the wrong wrong universe, buddy. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's close talking about education a little bit, and not so much uh, what we know, but how we learn. Uh, how do you think uh, the internet's going to change things there? So, I, um, I look at um, the world that software developers have built for themselves, the educational environment, ecology they've built, and um, wonder whether we're all going to be living in such a thing, um, which would actually be okay with me. So if you are a software developer um, and you have a question about how to do something or why your code isn't working, you you can Google it, get an answer, go to one of the popular sites, and... and um, We'll either find an answer because there are very few questions that have gone unasked and unanswered at this point, or uh, post it and you'll you'll get a response. You'll get a, a thread back at, at sites um, at, at like Stack Overflow, uh, where the best response, where people will improve each other's uh, answers, and the best response gets flagged, and you have your answer. You probably have the code written for you, and uh, and then you'll post your own version of it so other people can benefit from it. So not only is this a open collaborative environment in which people are helping each other. Um, it is uh, um, an example of what public learning looks like, as opposed to learning being a private act in which the individual the individual soul is bettered and the culture is better because we have better people. Instead, this is, this is a declaration that learning itself ought to be a public activity that improves the public. So every time you learn in this new environment, you get an answer. The environment gets better and richer. Um, you know, engineers are, are special in part because they could build the tools that, that they wanted, and that's one reason why this environment has shown up for developers first. It's an incredibly uh, efficient um, and creative and collaborative environment for for learning one's craft, and I I hope that we'll see that lots of different disciplines are going to to learn from this. Yeah, I think it has tremendous potential in certain areas. I I think education is going to change radically in the next five or ten years. Um, I'm very excited about what uh, Sebastian Thrun is doing with Udacity and providing online education around to people around the world for free uh, in terms of monetary costs and certifying their expertise in computer science, for example. And I think in those areas, computer science, math, and others, um, that's going to dominate the way we teach these things now uh, for a bunch of reasons. But for other areas, it might be a little bit harder to bring those tools to bear. Yes. You know, so the, the effect of the internet on knowledge overall is, is very discipline-dependent. For sure. My guest today has been David Weinberger. David, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Russ, thank you so much for, for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.